Amen. Church family, one of my favorite things is listening to the people of God declare his greatness and his goodness through singing. You sing so incredibly well. Students, thank you so much for blessing our hearts this morning through that rendition of Psalm 42. Let me add my voice to the voice of Pastor Travis and extending a welcome to you this morning. We're grateful for your being here with us. If you're visiting with us today, it is our habit to take books of the Bible and preach through books of the Bible. For we believe that the Lord has spoken through his word, and if we want to know who is God, we must give ourselves to the preaching and teaching of the word of God. We are in the book of Exodus, but for a few weeks. Last week, this week, and next week, we're looking at the idea of church membership, and then we're going to start a series of sermons this summer, through this, or continue a series of sermons through the Psalms this summer, so you don't want to miss our summer together as we make our way through the Psalms, a summer through the Psalms. Last week, we looked at the idea of church membership. Is church membership a biblical idea? Must I actually join a New Testament church? Should I actually go through a process? Whatever that process may look like in a local church, is that process even valid? Is that even a biblical concept? And we argued last week from a number of passages of Scripture in the New Testament that indeed the New Testament expects that you and I would live our lives in connection to and in commitment to a local New Testament church. This week we want to look at the idea as it relates to church membership as covenant membership. What is covenant membership? Why in the world should we in any measurable way practice covenant membership. What is covenant membership? I've never heard of covenant membership, Pastor. Where in the world does does this idea come from? As we survey evangelical Christianity in this world, as we look at the church, does anyone really want to make an argument that the church in America is strong and or strengthening? If we look even in the context of our own denomination, if we are to measure the health of a denomination, actually we're not a denomination, we're a convention of churches. If we are to measure the health of the convention of our churches solely by the use of numbers, in other words, the number of people who are actually members in a local church and or participating in a local church and or being baptized by local churches, What you see from history is that our denomination, our convention of churches, is in a downfall like this. What precipitates this downfall like this? I think that the answer to that is um, polyvalent. I think it would take us all morning to talk through the, the, the 200 reasons for why our convention of churches is in a downfall, but I would like to submit to you this morning that one of the reasons why I believe our convention of churches is in a downfall is that we have left the principles of which we were founded upon as it relates to church membership when we began to pursue and participate in 
the American church growth movement. It began in our denomination back in the 50s with a million more in 54. So what's taking place? Is there, is there something wrong with a convention of churches? Is there something wrong with our church desiring to grow? No. But does the ends always justify the means? Does it matter ultimately how we grow? The answer to that is yes. When we seek an ends through an unbiblical means, don't be surprised when we have an unbiblical end. So what did we do? A million more in 54? We said, hey, come be part of the church. No requirements for baptism other than you saying, I want to be baptized. No requirement for church membership other than you walking down front of a church on Sunday morning. We have no idea who you are, and we just vote on you, and we accept you into the membership of the church. Such that what has happened in the context of Southern Baptist, we claim that we have 15 15 million members, a little less than 15 million, 14.6 million members 14.6 million people claim to be members of a local Southern Baptist church, yet only three to five million gather on a weekly basis to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that we have participated in a convention of churches or even in the context of our own church where we claim that we have 14, 15 million people and less than a third of those people are gathering to worship on a weekly basis. Have we forgotten what Christ has required of us? Have we failed at the very center of our convention of churches. Our center of the convention of churches is not in Nashville through the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. The epicenter of Southern Baptist churches is every single local Southern Baptist church. So what happens when our local Southern Baptist churches pursue a good end through a wrong means? we end up with 15 million people on a roll and only four to five million of those showing up on a weekly basis, actually living their lives out on mission with Christ. If we were to survey the history of our own collection of believers, that is Baptist, the narrative of Baptist is going to start somewhere in the... uh, early 1600s. We go all the way back to the early 1600s in a collection of a group of people that were known as Anabaptists and flowing out of the Anabaptists become this group of Baptists that were on mainline in mainline Europe, primarily in, in Britain, and that group was divided between two different groups, a particular Baptist and, and the general Baptist. And particular Baptists and general Baptists were primarily divided along the issue of Calvinism. And then we flow into the life of our own, of our own country. 
And one of the early movements in terms of Christianity in the life of our own country was indeed a collection of a group of Baptist. And one of those early collections of Baptists in Rehoboth, Massachusetts, in 1663, wrote this concerning the idea of church covenant. Quote, It is our most burdened duty to walk in visible communion with Christ and each other according to the prescript rule of His most holy word, to walk together according to his revealed word and the visible gospel relation both in relationship both to Christ, our only head, and to each other as fellow members and brethren of the same household of faith. From the very early movement of Baptists among the Anabaptists, culminating in the birth of Baptists in our own country, Baptists have operated with an idea of covenant church membership. What is a church covenant? A good friend of mine that I did PhD work with at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary wrote his dissertation on covenant, and uh, Travis Trawick noted church covenant is this, quote, a delineated expression of the commitments biblically derived that a church member candidate pledges and voluntary covenantal agreement with other believers who have similarly covenanted together and comprise the local church initially entering by believers' baptism. In other words, a church covenant is an agreed-upon document that helps church members understand their vertical relationship between them and God and their horizontal relationship between them and others. The early Baptists understood the importance of clearly articulating the expectations of what it looks like for members to be in agreement with one another in the context of a very specific church family. Flowing from this 1663 church covenant from a church in Rehoboth, Massachusetts, a newly formed collection of churches in 1833 called the New Hampshire Baptist Convention, themselves publicized a covenant that would serve as an example of covenants that denominations and conventions of churches, particularly Baptists, would themselves found themselves upon. For example, the Southern Baptist Convention's Baptist Faith and Message, the the statement of faith for this church is written upon, grounded in this New Hampshire statement of faith that goes all the way back to 1833. In fact, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 reads this way, quote, a New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant. Did you hear those words? Even our own statement of faith notates the importance of a church being covenanted by being founded upon a covenant. So how have we moved away in the context of our churches 
our Baptist churches, even this Baptist church, founded in the middle 1800s with a covenant, how did we move away from these expressions in the context of local churches? Writing on this idea is a theologian by the name of Jonathan Lehman, and Jonathan grounds this understanding of a divorce of the use of church covenant in the idea of American individualism. Quote, a church covenant benefits local churches by pointing to specific ways individuals can walk together in covenant fellowship through their congregation. And this way, the local church can hopefully overcome the problem of an underdeveloped theology that conspires with our anti-authority and individualistic instincts to deceive us into claiming that we love all Christians everywhere equally while excusing ourselves from loving any of those Christians specifically, especially submissively. We don't like, at the end of that day, the idea that I should submit my life to another or to anyone. So I'd like for us to look briefly this morning at two passages of scriptures upon which the idea of a church covenant was founded in early Baptist life and continues to be two texts that permeate the thought of theologians and churches who reflect upon the importance of the use of a church covenant. Briefly, a text that we've looked at before, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. And then I want to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. I want to offer this as the primary idea for our understanding of church covenant this morning. A church covenant is an acknowledgement that we are a gathering of believers. A church covenant is an acknowledgement that we are a gathering of believers joyfully submitted to Christ and to one another and firmly committed to walk together for worship and obedience to Christ and his word. We get this understanding that a church covenant is submission ultimately to Christ from the words of Christ himself. As we survey the gospels, there are only two references to this idea of ecclesia or church and the totality of the gospels. And both of those mentions are by Jesus here in the context of the gospel of Matthew. You'll know this text well by now, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 25. Here, Jesus teaches us some aspects of the local church. At least one of those aspects is the importance that the local church is first and foremost submitted to Christ and to one another. See how Jesus himself expresses his sovereign rule over his church. If your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to what? The church. The authority of the church. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. For truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Notice, friends, how this text teaches two primary things. First and foremost, the church is submitted to Christ. Christ is our head. Christ is the one from whom we take our marching orders. God, through Christ, has given to us the Word of God so that we are to know how to respond to one another, even in the context of the church. But how do we know how we are to respond to one another? We are to respond to one another in the way in which Christ himself has commanded. How has Christ, for example, commanded? John chapter 13, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another. See, the context of the church should be the height of the expression of love. There ought to be no greater expression of love than what we find in the context of the local church. And let me say it to you maybe in a surprising way. Your marriage is not the height of the expression of love that you should experience on a weekly basis. The church is. We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and we see this chapter that we've affectionately called the love chapter. But even 1 Corinthians chapter 13, while primarily read in the context of marriages, is not a chapter about the way in which a husband is to love his wife or a wife is to love her husband. Paul is writing about the way in which the church should love the church. So we are submitted first and foremost to Christ. Christ gives us his marching orders. For example, and we could spend an entire sermon on what it means to be submitted to Christ. I'm just giving one example, the example of love. Notice how Jesus himself says it. For where two or three are gathered in my name, what is the authority for the gathering of this local church? Does the authority for the gathering of this local church lie in our name, Woodlawn Baptist Church? No. The authority of this church uniquely lies in Christ. 
And we, as his believers, can take assurance that when the church gathers, and when the church, particularly in the context of this passage, adjudicates a situation, we have the authority of Christ. But notice it's not only to Christ that we are submitted. Matthew chapter 18 also teaches us that we are submitted to one another. You see that in this passage of Scripture. If your brother offends you, so Miss Carolyn, you have offended me. What am I to do? Aha. Go find five other church members and tell those five church members what Miss Carolyn has done to me. That's our preferred method. No. If Miss Carolyn offends me, I'm to go to Miss Carolyn. And notice, even in this going to Miss Carolyn is this idea of submission. We are mutually submitted to one another. It's the only way this process can work. If there's no submission on my behalf to her or her to me, then this process of church discipline doesn't work. For I'll go to her and I'll say, Miss Carolyn, I was really offended the other day when um, you sinned against me by lying to me. I'm just making that up. Miss Carolyn's never lied to me, I don't think. Even though she does tell me on a regular basis I'm the best preacher she's ever heard. I don't think she's ever lied. So if there's no reciprocal submission, if I go to Miss Carolyn, what is she going to say to me? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Under uh, What authority do you have to come to me to in any measurable way communicate that I've done something wrong? The only way this works is if there is a level of submission that is expected. This is exactly what the text is saying. We are equally submitted to one another. So I go to Miss Carolyn. I say, Miss Carolyn, you lied against me. I don't appreciate it. It really offended me. And now Miss Carolyn has two options. She can say, well, brother, you're right. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And what's happened at that moment? To whom has Miss Carolyn submitted? Ultimately to Christ, but also to who? To me. But suppose Miss Carolyn says, well, I don't care that you're offended by that. I'll tell another lie against you. That doesn't bother me. So I say, Miss Carolyn, you know, this just shouldn't be the case. So, uh, sorry, get over it. It's life. Ah, so now what does the Bible say I should do? What should we do? At that moment and that moment alone, I have an opportunity to go get two or three other people. What's the idea behind two or three other people coming to Miss Carolyn? Submission. Submission. If two or three of us show up to Miss Carolyn and we don't have this idea of submission, she's going to say to us the same thing she said to me. Who do you think you are? So the idea is Miss Carolyn would see these two or three people that she loves, that she cares for, that she's in covenant relationship with, and she sees them coming as a witness to say, hey, you lied against Lewis. That's, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. And what should she do? Submit. 
But what if she doesn't submit to those two or three godly people in the life of the church? What should you do next? Go to the church. Do you see the levels of submission here, friends? This passage of Scripture does not work if the idea of submitting ourselves to one another isn't present. And our ultimate submission to one another isn't submission to one another, it's submission to Christ. So we might say it this way, one of the best ways that we can communicate that we're ultimately submitted to Christ is by the way in which we submit to one another. Don't tell people you are submitted to Christ if you're not submitted to Christ's bride, the church. So Matthew chapter 18 shows us this joyful submission upon which this idea of covenant is is made. Submission to Christ and submission to one another. But notice a church covenant is not only a statement of submission to Christ and to one another, it is a firm commitment to walk together for worship and obedience to Christ and his word. We see this firm commitment to worship together and walk together rooted in the text of scripture in Hebrews chapter 10. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, present tense, at this very moment, because of Christ's work, we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, present tense, with a pure heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast, present tense at this moment, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And then in the negative, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, present tense, but encouraging, continually encouraging one another all the more as you see the end coming. Even more as you see Jesus Christ returning. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 25 communicates this idea that we are firmly committed to walk together and to worship together in obedience to Christ and his word. This passage of scripture communicates this idea of a firm commitment. Notice the commitment to this one anotherness in this text of scripture. Verse 22, let us draw near. Let us worship together. 
Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Number, verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up. This passage of scripture demands, expects our firm commitment to worship how? To walk how? Together. Let us, let us, let us do not forsake the gathering. And notice the benefits, friends, of the gathering of the body of Christ. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. See, friends, this is where the idea of a church covenant understands this implications of horizontal relationships. The church covenant, not only speaking of our authority under Christ, Christ's reign over his church, but the practical benefits of how we are to relate to one another and to respond to one another in the context of this gathering. There are benefits to our gathering in this context that you cannot experience separated from this gathering. So Matthew chapter 18 and Hebrews chapter 10 communicate a few things. Number one, they demand gathering. I want to say that again. Matthew chapter 18 and Hebrews chapter 10 demand gathering. There is no such thing as you being a part of a group of people with whom you are not gathering. Matthew chapter 18 and Hebrews chapter 19, 10 demand gathering. Just listen at the language. How do we adjudicate what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18? By gathering. How do we rightly worship? How do we draw near? How do we hold our, our confession of faith? With sincerity, how do we stir one another up to love and good deeds? By gathering. Matthew chapter 18 and Hebrews chapter 10 demand gathering. Secondly, they promise Christ is present in that gathering. So friends, when we gather at this very moment, we have the authority of Christ present with us. We don't gather apart from Christ. We gather in Christ. Friends, this gathering this morning is an exclusive gathering of people who are connected to Christ. We are in Christ. And the only way that you or I can rightly gather and rightly worship in the context of this gathering is to have our hearts made right with God through Christ. If you're here today, friend, and you've never trusted in the person of Christ, you've never given your life to Christ, 
then you're not in Christ. And you're separated from the body of Christ. Could I plead with you today to trust in Christ? To believe in Jesus? To know that Jesus has made a sacrifice on your behalf, to know that Jesus took upon the wrath of God that you deserve, to know that Jesus stood as a substitute for you, that you should have died, but he has died. And he's died, friend, because you and I, apart from Christ, are sinners separated from God. We have rebelled against God. We have rebelled against a holy, righteous, good God. We have rebelled against a God who created us. We have rebelled against a God who has given to us the rules of the life of game through his word. We have rebelled against the word of God. And because we've rebelled against the word of God, we can't fix ourselves. I can't make a substitute on my behalf. Only God through Christ, can accomplish that for you and friends he has. Would you trust in that Jesus today? Would you believe in that Christ today? And through belief in him, would you be connected to the body of Christ? Would you enjoy the benefits of this gathering? Trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. These two texts demand gathering. These two texts remind us that we have the promise that indeed Jesus himself is with us. And we're reminded, particularly here from Hebrews chapter 10, that this gathering is only possible because of the atonement of Christ. Look back at chapter 10, verse 19 of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the holy places. How? By the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Friends, we gather every Sunday to give thanks to God that Jesus has made an atonement on our behalf. We gather every Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This gathering is only possible, not because somebody 30, 40 years ago built a nice building, not because a group of people a hundred years ago made a sacrifice and gave this piece of property to Jones Creek Baptist Church. Those are all wonderful things. But we gather, friends, through what this text reminds us, the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does this church covenant do for us? I'd like to encourage you to take a moment and open your worship guides to page 14. To page 14. From these texts of scriptures, what should a church covenant be doing? A church covenant should link confession with conduct. Or we might say it in a fancy way, orthodoxy to orthopraxy. What we believe should affect the way in which we live our lives. So what we're saying through a church covenant is, this church covenant ought to be some type of statement of what we believe 
and what we believe should conduct how we live our lives. A covenant links confession and conduct. This covenant also links this vertical relationship, believers to Christ, believers to God, and this horizontal relationship, believers to one another. It should imitate what Matthew chapter 18 teaches, submission to Christ and to one another. And the church covenant should focus on the corporate nature of gathering. Just by show of hands, and not to call anybody out, how many of you knew Woodlawn Baptist Church operated with a covenant? So I know Woodlawn Baptist Church operates with a covenant. Okay? If you have been connected to this church for more than 10 years, so I just cut out a whole bunch of people, okay? You're fine. If you've been connected to this church more than 10 years and you've read this covenant more than 10 times, raise your hand. Very few. And yet, this church covenant stands in a very prominent way as a communication of what this church historically understands to be this vertical relationship and this horizontal relationship. This church covenant is intended to be used regularly in the life of a church as a means of protecting both that horizontal relationship, that horizontal relationship and that vertical relationship. This church covenant is intended as a statement of not only what this church collectively believes, but it is intended as a statement of what you also are committed to. I would like to propose to you this morning that one of the reasons why we have seen a negative working of the church, and what I mean by that, one of the reasons why we've seen a decrease and the life of churches across America is because we have failed at rightly guarding the front door of our churches and communicating to people what it actually means to be connected to the body of Christ. And the church covenant, friends, is a way that our forefathers in the faith understood to be one of the greatest means of guarding the front door so that our back door isn't wide open. Every members meeting, this church meets four times a year 
and members' meetings. Every person in this room ought to be reading this thing at least four times a year. What do I mean by that? Everybody in this room ought to have such a deep sense of responsibility and connection to this body of Christ that you regularly participate in our members' meetings so that you're reading this church covenant. It is a reminder of what we are agreeing to with one another. With that said, let's read our church covenant together. Page 14 in your worship guides. Friend, if you're not a member of this church, I pray that God would use the reading of this document to compel you to be connected to a body of Christ that is actively taking seriously the gathering of the body of Christ and membership. Let's read it together. The Spirit of God, having led us to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God and this assembly, with prayer and joy in our hearts, enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We commit ourselves, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, to walk together in Christian love, to work for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and compassion, to advance its spiritual welfare, to sustain its worship, ordinances, disciplines, and doctrines, and to support cheerfully and systematically its financial ministry. We also commit ourselves to maintain daily family and personal devotions, to educate our children in religious truth, to endeavor to win to Christ both those near at hand and those far removed, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful to our commitments, and exemplary in our actions to avoid all unkind conversation and excessive anger, and be filled by the Spirit. We further commit ourselves to practice brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to be courteous in speech and action, to be slow to take offense, but quick to reconcile according to the teachings of Christ. We moreover agree that when we move from this vicinity, we will, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's Word. Do you see that vertical relationship, friend? Do you see that horizontal relationship, friends? Do you hear... What Jonathan Liebman said, I begin with and I close with. Quote, conspires with our anti-authority and individualistic instincts to deceive us into claiming that we love all Christians everywhere equally while excusing ourselves from loving any of those Christians specifically 
especially submissively. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through your word, Lord, you had revealed to us what it looks like for us to live in right relationship with you and right relationship with one another. And God, I pray this morning just very specifically for the life of this church. That, Lord, we would hear the teaching of your word. We would see its practical implications in the life of our church, our church covenant, and that, God, you, by your spirit, might increase the commitment of the people of God and the life of this church toward you and toward one another. Spirit of God, at this time, at this moment, in each of our hearts, would you increase our love for you? Would you increase our affection for Christ? And secondly, Holy Spirit, would you increase our love for one another. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. Friend, if you're here today and you don't know what it means to be connected to Christ, you've never submitted your life to Christ, you've never been saved, you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, as we sing, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front as we sing, we'd love for you to come take one of us by the hands, and we'd be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. But friends, you don't have to come and speak to myself or Pastor Travis. Feel free to turn to someone seated next to you, for there are plenty of people seated around you in the life of this church who would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly,